Welcome to the JCCT Pulse, a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in-depth conversations with the article authors. Each episode, we will go over several hand-picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT and the Julian Ruffin Beckwith Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia. Today it's my pleasure to speak with Alexander Van Rosendale. He's the author of a research paper in the September-October issue of the JCCT titled Percent Atheroma Volume, Optimal Variable to Report Whole Heart Atherosclerotic Plaque Burden with coronary CTA, the paradigm study. Dr. Van Rosendale is with the Department of Radiology at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York, New York in the United States, as well as the Department of Cardiology, the Leiden University Medical Center in Leiden, the Netherlands. I'll start by asking you, Dr. Van Rosendale, tell me about your study and Maybe you can summarize for our readers the clinical question or hypothesis that you and your co-investigators were interested in examining. Yeah, for sure. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me for this uh, talk. Yeah, we performed this study because quantitative CT is very new. And in all the studies that have been performed, we saw that there are three ways to quantify the total atherosclerotic plaque burden from CCTA. The first one is the total plaque volume, which is very simple. It's just a summation of the plaque from all the coronary segments. Then we see there is the percent atheroma volume, which is used a lot in IVIS. And there you normalize the total plaque volume for the vessel volume. And then we see the the normalized total atheroma volume, the TAV norm. And there you normalize the plaque volume you get from all the segments of the coronary tree for the vessel length. And as you hear, there is, you calculate them in different ways. And with this study, we wanted to see in different clinical scenarios, like men or women or men with a large body surface area versus a small surface area, how do these three definitions of plug, how do they differ? Because that will be important when we are proceeding further in the quantitative CTA field, and we should provide some guidelines and some consensus on which is the best definition to define uh, plug burden from a CTA and what are the limitations and the disadvantages of each method. So that's why we wanted to perform this study. Yeah, so there's no consensus, as you mentioned, on how to measure and report plaque. So how did you conduct this study? Hmm, yeah, for this study, we used data from the Paradigm study. That is a, a cohort of about 2,000 patients that re- actually received serial CCTA. But for this study, we only used the baseline CTA. And the interesting thing is that all the CTs have been analyzed in a quantitative way, which means that every single coronary segment of the coronary tree has been uh, quantified, and that means we calculated the lumen volume, the vessel volume, and which is in between those two, that's the plaque volume. So that's different than how we usually report CTA, which is based on a a visual analysis, so usually a stenosis assessment by the eye. Well, tell us, what were the primary results of your study? 
Yeah. So first, we divided patients according to their body surface area, and we divided them according to the highest quartile, and we compared them with the other three quartiles. And what we what we saw was, well, as expected, we saw that the the vessel volume was much higher in patients with the highest BSA. That, so that that was in in line of expectance. But what we also saw was that in patients with a high BSA, the plug volume was higher and also the TAV norm was higher, but the PAV, the percent atroma volume, that was the same. So basically you can argue why that is. That's because we saw that there was a a strong concordance between uh, vessel volume and plug volume. And when you normalize for the vessel volume, which you do with percent atroma volume, you will not get differences between patients with a high and a small BSA. So that was the first result. And then we also compared the three definitions in men versus women. And there we did not see uh, big differences. In men versus women, we saw as expected that women had a, a bit smaller BSA and a bit smaller vessel volume, but the plug volume, the person at the volume and the vessel and the TV norm were all similar. All right. Well, great. Tell us what, what does this mean for the JCCT readers or listeners? You know, what are the clinical implications of this? Yeah. I think that's a very important question because this is quite a technical paper. And I do think that these results are not yet for clinical practice yet. This is one step in the, in the chain to further develop and get more insight in how we should uh, define plug burden from uh, CCTA. I think conclusions we can draw is that PAV, person at Roma volume. So when you normalize the plug volume by vessel volume, you get very consistent results according to whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, and whether you have a large BSA or a small BSA. So I think that is good to have. You need to have a, cons- a, a method, a, a plug burden definition that's consistent across patients with different phenotypes. So for instance, if you're going to do a, a trial and you're trying to get significant differences between plug volumes or, or let's say reductions in plug volume according to a therapy, it's good to have a variable with a low variance. I think if you, uh, it looks like PAV should be then the optimal uh, variable. Yeah, and the thing that I would also add to that is that, you know, number one is this is a step towards potentially standardizing how quantitative plaque is reported. But secondly, we know that just reporting volume alone of plaque may be insufficient. For example, in women who have smaller arteries, have smaller coronary volumes, even small amounts of plaque may have clinical implications and significant clinical implications that if you just looked at the volume itself, you might think it's very little, but relative to the amount of vessel size, this may be clinically important. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I really agree with that. Also, uh, figure one of the article is an example of what you just told indeed. In women with small vessels, a tiny amount of plaque will give a tiny plug volume, but probably a very high percent atroma volume. And we still don't know yet what the clinical implications are, but it could be well true that a high percent atroma volume may have a, a larger prognostic value than just PV. But that's further study should uh, establish that. Well, congratulations on a fantastic study, and thank you for publishing this work in the JCCT. Thank you very much. I really uh, like to talk about it. And uh, thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. It is my distinct pleasure 
to have with us today on the JCCT Pulse, Jonathan Weir McCall, who is the lead author of a paper in the September-October issue of the JCCT. And his paper is titled Annular versus Superannular Sizing for Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement in Bicuspid Aortic Valve Disease. And so this is a paper the current issue of the JCCT, and I advise our, our readers, that if they want to hear more about this, to pick up the latest issue. So, Jonathan, why don't we start by talking about kind of the background or rationale for your research paper? Thanks for the uh, invite. It's an honor to be on the call with you. The rationale for the, the paper was largely we've seen a huge amount of data come out on TAVR in tricuspid valves with uh, excellent supportive data of these but bicuspid valves have been excluded from the clinical trials to date. And part of that is because of the distorted anatomy that the bicuspid anatomy introduces, both within the fusion of the leaflets and within the aortic root itself. And in early generation devices, they noticed a far higher rate of complications associated with performing TAVR within these devices. And this led to some suggestions that a more accurate way to size the valve might be at the level of the fusion of the leaflets, so a superannular measurement rather than measuring it at the annulus itself. And this was based on early post-procedural CTs that seemed to show maximal wasting of the transcatheter device as it passed through the fused bicuspid leaflets. However, to date, no one had really looked at how measuring at this level would actually impact sizing, how it might impact outcomes. This had largely been a hypothesis to date that it might be a, a, a new approach to sizing of devices. So that was the goal of the current study, was to address this knowledge gap of how might superannular sizing impact device sizing and might this improve outcomes in bicuspid aortic valves? Yeah, so a really timely article and one of the first of its kind. And so tell us, how did you conduct the study? So this was a retrospective single center analysis of all bicuspid valves at our center that had a balloon expandable Sapien 3 device inserted with uh, a year's worth of follow-up after it. We pulled out all the CTs of these patients and then conducted a review of these to measure both the annulus and the superannular sizing. Now, for uh, readers or listeners who aren't familiar of the superannular sizing, what we uh, did is, first off, we defined our annular plane following the SCCT guidelines on this. And then we scrolled up from the annulus plane until we saw the first commissure of the uh, bicuspid valve. We then altered the plane of this just to cut through the second commissure of the bicuspid valve and measured what is called the intercommissural distance. And from this, we were able to derive the area and perimeter to then compare with the area and perimeter of the standard annular measurements. Yeah, really, really interesting techniques, and the readers a really nice figure uh, in this paper describing exactly what you mentioned, Jonathan, on how to do. You know, I think most of our readers are maybe familiar with annular area, but how to measure at the superannular area. And this has been, I think, somewhat of a debate in the field of TAVR imaging is where is best to measure. So, so what did you find? 
So essentially, we found that the superannular measurements consistently generated larger areas than those measured at the annulus. And as a result, there was a 55% concordance in valve sizing between the two techniques. But in 27% of patients, there was an upsizing in the transcatheter device that would have gone in compared with standard annular sizing, with the final 18% of cases having a reduction in the prosthesis size that would have been inserted if it had been guided by superannular sizing rather than annular sizing. Now, because this is a, a new technique, and of course, whenever we're wanting to guide the transcatheter procedure, we're wanting to provide the same answer each and every time uh, we are approached to be asked the question. The other thing we looked at in this study was the reproducibility of the two measurements. And we found that because of the uh, altered anatomy of the bicuspid valve, the nodular calcifications, that the superannular measurement area and perimeter were significantly less reproducible than the annular sizing. There was about three times more variability in the superannular sizing than there was in the annulus area between measurers. The final uh, thing that we found from the study was we went then and looked at the patients in whom annular and superannular sizing would have agreed and patients in whom the device size would have been altered and looking at the clinical outcomes of these two groups. And essentially, there was uh, no difference between the groups in whom superannual sizing would have altered the transcatheter device and in those in whom it would have agreed with the transcatheter device. So no greater risk of paravalvular leakage or lack of uh, device success. Wow. Well, congratulations on a well-done study. So it sounds like in conclusion for now, we know that this field continues to evolve, but this is one of the early studies that would suggest stick with annular sizing. Would that be your recommendation for folks doing this type of imaging to guide their interventionalists? Absolutely. I think for here and now, we've got an incredibly robust and reproducible technique that's used day in, day out in tricuspid valves, and it translates very well into bicuspid valves. We've also seen recent data coming out with new generation devices that seems to suggest that the rates of complications in bicuspid valves are pretty much the same as those in tricuspid valves. So the initial incentive to pursue a refined and improved technique to guide the device sizing seems to be reducing with improved transcatheter valve design. So for now, certainly continue with the annular measurements. As you say, we are starting to see a flurry of study of superannular measurements and different approaches to this, which may yield fruit in years to come. Excellent. Well, again, thank you, Jonathan Wormer-McCall, certainly a leader in the field of cardiovascular CT and is at the University of Cambridge School of Clinical Medicine in the UK. And this uh, paper, Annular versus Superannular Sizing for Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement in Bicuspid Aortic Valve Disease can be found in the September-October issue of the JCCT. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Talk to you. Have a good day. It is my pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Peter Stone. Dr. Peter Stone is a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, a cardiologist at the Brigham Women's Hospital, and the director of the Vascular Profiling Research Lab in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Stone. Todd, thank you very much. It really is an honor to be part of the system. 
Well, we are pleased to discuss an important invited review article just published in the September-October issue of the JCCT. And the title of that is Risk Stratification of Coronary Plaques Using Physiologic Characteristics by Coronary CT Angiography, a Focus on Shear Stress. So, Dr. Stone, why don't, for our listeners who may not be familiar with shear stress, can you briefly just describe what is shear stress and why does it matter to clinicians and imagers? Sure. I think that's a a critical issue, and I think it's a major direction where we are all heading, both in vascular biology, imaging, and intervention. It is based on the idea that plaques inside the coronary arteries do not all evolve at the same time, at the same pace, or get into trouble at the same time over the course of atherosclerosis, And it's been appreciated for many years that atherosclerosis everywhere, certainly including the coronary arteries, is highly focal. And infarcts occur only infrequently, of course, and it's not a wavefront of MIs that occur for someone with coronary disease. And it's become clear that there has to be something other than systemic risk factors that are responsible for the natural history of coronary artery plaques individually in a patient with coronary disease. And the only thing that makes sense, if it has to be something intensely focal and local within the coronary artery, is the local blood flow pattern. And that gets to endothelial shear stress, which is the tangential force of blood flowing across the endothelium And it's been appreciated for many years now, probably about three decades or so, that areas of eddy currents, of slow flow, eddy current type flow, of recirculating flow, where there is flow perhaps a little back upstream, and I'll explain more about that in a second, are the only areas that atherosclerosis develops. And there's been many studies from molecular aspects of vascular biology to full larger scale cellular and plaque-based vascular biology activity that shows that areas that are associated with a curvature, the inner aspect of a curvature, the outer wastes of a bifurcation, and up or downstream from every coronary artery plaque that is in, that does obstruct coronary flow, There are areas of low flow, circulating flow, exactly like a rock might do in the middle of a stream. And those little eddy currents or that slow flow leads to all of the detrimental vascular biology aspects of atherosclerosis. And the worse that low flow, recirculating flow, the more focal atherosclerosis is going to form in only those areas and make them prone to destabilize and cause an acute coronary event or kill us or develop more progressive stable angina. So the idea has been developed now that computational technologies are much better to do these fancier, savior folks computations, uh, the Navier-Stokes equations, to make sure that we can do either by invasive imaging, image exactly what the flow patterns or coronary arteries consist of, And now, which is unbelievably exciting for all of us in the vascular biology field and coronary management field, is if we can start with that risk assessment in a non-invasive manner with a CTA, it is extraordinarily more helpful. 
So that is what our whole process has been about. That's what our review article is all about. Wow. Yeah, this is such an exciting field. And I would, for all of our listeners, really encourage you to take a read of this very important and I think forward thinking review article on maybe some future concepts of how CT can assess the risk for plaque progression and, in, and, and patient risk. In the article, Dr. Stone, you talk about using CT to derive shear stress. And that's something that, again, I think many of our listeners may not be familiar with. How does that work using CT technology? It's very interesting and very important. I think this is going to be a phenomenal routine application of CTA in the not too foreseeable future. In order to calculate the flow patterns, the local shear stress patterns, you need to have an accurate 3D reconstruction of the artery lumen in all of its detailed variations along its course and measure the flow. And that really is all you need. With the intravascular imaging using OCT and IVIS, one can get a very precise segmentation of the lumen, and then one can calculate the blood flow and do all the computations. With CTA, you already have the 3D configuration of the artery, and with all of the enhancements of post-processing and voxel size, one can get a good assessment of the segmentation of the artery lumen throughout the course of the artery. And simply by combining those two and measuring or assuming flow, one can then calculate the detailed endothelial shear stress patterns along the course of each artery. Wow. Definitely very exciting work that you and your lab are doing, looking at these biomechanical forces that impact the coronary vessel, in fact, even down to the individual plaque level. I think a lot of our readers are familiar with CT-derived fractional flow reserve, but this is really building on that technology of, of modeling the physiologic impact of plaque and in the anatomy of the coronary vessel. I'd like to expand on that for a second because this is really a critical element that takes us to a whole nother level of certainty and prognostication where the field of so-called vulnerable plaques must go. And that is the idea that the overwhelming majority of severe obstructing plaques, or even severe anatomic plaques as thin calf fiber atheromas, the vast majority remain quiescent. And only a small minority in the range of 10, 15, maybe a bit more percent of those high-risk appearing plaques, even positive FFR plaques, destabilize and actually cause an event. So if you just look at the anatomic high-risk factors, the simple flow limitation, high risk factor, you will miss the overwhelming majority of plaques that are responsible for causing new events, which is in part why the whole idea of pursuing individual risk stratification for prognosis and possible preemptive intervention has been considered a fool's journey by some because it's not very predictive accurate. But the crux is they're looking at, we as a community have been looking at the wrong thing for all of these years, because you have to have the appropriate high-risk anatomic substrate, 
but that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. If we look at the ongoing inflammatory stimulus of the local flow patterns, one can then identify or get closer to identifying the 10, 15, 20% of ostensibly high-risk plaques that remain in a high-risk environment and will then destabilize and cause a new event. Wow, this is terrific. And, and so looking forward, what's your vision? Where do you see this technology going and how might it impact the practice of cardiovascular CT? I think it's going to be extraordinarily important and impactful because currently the only approach to this problem is based in the invasive world. And there's been a lot of evidence with OCT and IVIS that one can do all of these computations and even a good amount of the predictive aspects. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of people who are truly at risk of destabilizing plaques because they're already in the cath lab in order to get their invasive intravascular assessments. If we can go one step broader with population-based testing of the CTA-based individual plaque assessment and have a at least a good, if not very good, indication of where the anatomy is high risk and the local flow patterns are high risk, then we will be dealing with the tens of thousands, millions of individuals around the world who could benefit from having a non-invasive risk assessment of their individual plaques, which could also, of course, be repeated periodically since plaques do evolve over time. And then if it appeared to be high risk, one could then do an invasive study where there may be more precision because the imaging resolution is substantially better with OCT and IBIS, and then give the final assessment that something does need to be done for a particular high-risk plaque that's identified, and then go ahead and perform a preventive, preemptive procedure to get that high-risk plaque off the table so it's no longer in jeopardy of causing a problem for patient management. Well, really exciting future. And certainly as someone who does cardiovascular CT, you know, we certainly want to maximize the prognostic and therapeutic impacts of our imaging and, you know, going much more beyond stenosis and beyond our qualitative plaque assessments, moving to something that really is potentially very impactful for a larger number of patients. Really exciting. It utilizes the exact same CTA that you would do anyway. That's right. And so it's purely a post-processing phenomenon, which means that the application for CTA operators and cardiologists around the world will be able to do this from presumably existing or slightly finer-tuned CTA imaging. Well, really exciting. I I know we're out of time now, but I could talk with Dr. Stone about this probably for for hours. It's just really exciting work, and his lab is certainly leading the way in this important area of research. Again, I want to thank Dr. Stone, and I would encourage all of our JCCT listeners to pick up the latest issue, the September-October issue of the JCCT, and give this important review article a read. Thank you again, Dr. Stone. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us today for JCCT Pulse. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Want to read the articles we discussed today? 
They are available online along with the full issue at journalofcardiovascularct.com. The link is provided in the show notes. Members of SCCT receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening.